Hello and welcome to another New Criterion podcast. Today is Friday, October the 7th. I'm Eric Simpson, associate editor of the New Criterion, and I am here again with my good friend Jay Nordlinger, the music critic for the New Criterion, senior editor for National Review. Jay, we have a new season. Here we, we do. Are. Happy new season, Eric. I should say, by the way, that uh, today is we are recording on October the 7th. By the time you listeners at home hear this, it may very well be the 10th or the 11th, but uh, just take a little trip back in time with us for a minute. So, in fact, Jay and I have been been traveling various places all over the world, and, and so we weren't able to sit down right at the beginning of the season like we have in the past. So we've we've missed a couple of weeks. Jay, have you seen anything or heard anything worth mentioning yet? Yeah, I've been to a couple of New York Philharmonic concerts and a couple of operas at the Met. Hmm. Uh, I heard uh, Anthony McGill play the Mozart Clarinet Concerto. Oh, lovely. Uh, really quite fine. Hmm. Yes. And I heard last night, I guess, a performance by Lang Lang of Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 4 in G Major, which was unconventional, of course, but highly interesting <laughs> and, and musical. He's a very interesting guy. Uh, at the Met, let me remember, there was a Tristan und Isolde, uh, right. Nina Stemma, the Swedish soprano, really quite good. I think that's the best thing I can say about the performance I heard. And also the, well, that's not true. I forgot about the tenor. Uh, Stuart Skelton, no slouch. What did you think of the conductor? Well, I thought I uh, I heard quite <laughs> I heard a quite mixed performance. This was Simon Rattle. He's Sir Simon, isn't he? He is, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the prelude was I thought it'd be the longest and worst Tristan Isolde on <laughs> on record because the prelude was so extended and filled with awkward pauses and so unmusical. It was line by line. Uh, rather than a whole. And I thought, my goodness, if he does this, we're all dead. There was some excellent conducting uh, the night I attended. But the love duet was not part of it. It had weirdly little rapture and ecstasy. It was flat as a pancake. It was so odd. Uh, but, you know, Rattle's a worthy, worthy guy. Yeah. By the way, I thought of something. This is not Rattle's fault, but... um. He conducted, not so long ago at the Met, Pelias and Melisande of Debussy. And uh, the tenor, Ben Hepner, once described that that opera, which is a great work, as four hours of French Novocaine. <laughs> and I thought, is Rattle going to give me four hours of Wagnerian Novocaine? And, and it wasn't. There was some really fine conducting. Mm. Uh, so I heard it opening night, and... Taken as a whole, I actually thought it was one of the best, musically speaking, best performances I have heard there, maybe ever. I thought the the top of the third act was absolutely hair-raising. Um, Stuart Skelton, who I think did a great job, was uh, getting a little tired by the end of it, but who doesn't in that role? I mean, to, to ask a tenor to get through all three acts of Tristan and still sound uh, like he just rolled out of bed is... It's a punishing role, and interestingly, there are no high notes, no high notes right. at all for Tristan. Uh, it's just um, requires it, it lies uneasily for many, hmm. and it requires a great deal of stamina. Right? Can we say that this production is despicable? I mean, it's not just wrong; it, it is actually it is despicable. Why do you say that? What these people have done? Well, it's not Tristan. It's hmm. a, it's a completely different story. For example, uh, Isolde kills herself, does she? You know, she commits suicide. She, she slashes her wrists. Yeah. Changes everything. Oh, I was just I thought it was just grotesque. It was barely forgivable. There were there were things about it that I thought worked. On the whole, yeah, I think it was trying far too hard. And it was too bad. I actually have liked some of the stuff that Marius Trelinsky, the director, has done in the past. I thought his Bluebeard's Castle a couple of seasons ago was extraordinary. Well, and for, forgetting the end, the, the fabricated ending, hmm. I don't believe the stage looked like the music or the story or the libretto. Um, this has an, an, an air of another time about it, different mores, different values, and a timelessness as well. You're looking at all that modern stuff, that modern equipment and, and technology. It's right. a so-called update. I, I think that um, a production ought to match a, a score, a story, and a libretto, and I don't think they matched at all. And I think if you want to 
set something in that time and place, I mean, of the director's choosing, well, people should make their own operas. Hmm. And if they're sort of bored with Tristan and Isolde's, they should... It's what I said about the Rigoletto, for example, set in 1960 Las Vegas with the Rat Pack. Right. Great. You want an opera from 1960 in Las Vegas with a Rat Pack? It sounds like a great... I'd love to see that opera. Go ahead and write one. Get someone to write one. Rigoletto is something else entirely. Yeah, unfortunately, then you don't get to use Verdi's music. Yeah, or, <laughs> yeah, or misuse. Yeah, but, but, but that, that's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah. And last night was uh, the opening night of Carnegie Hall. Oh. Do you say Carnegie or Carnegie? Carnegie here in New York and Carnegie in Pittsburgh, I understand. I think, the whole, I, think, I think the whole world outside of Pittsburgh says Carnegie. Okay. And in his hometown, they say Carnegie, I believe. Huh. I wonder what the Scottish say. His ancestral yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was the Simon Bolivar Orchestra of Venezuela with uh, Gustavo Dudamel, the dude. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was opening night fair. It was La Valse. Yeah. The Rite of Spring, actually, interestingly, which which can sort of go either way. It's it's a it's a great piece. It can be a very serious piece, but it's also a a loud and exciting piece. Young so, people love it. And so, <laughs> I'm talking about the players. Oh, right, and this right, is a youth right. orchestra, correct? Well, it used to be. Oh, sorry. And this is this is the thing that's kind ah. of interesting about it, and why I was a little I hadn't heard them before live, and I was I didn't quite know what to expect because the story of the orchestra is that they they are kind of the the summit of El Sistema, the national program of, of music education. And so for a long time, this was, in fact, the youth orchestra. But my understanding is that it is... The, the orchestra just has sort of continued to age and all the players have stayed in it, so now they are actually adult professional performers. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, most of them. Mm-hmm. And but They're, they're still young great. adults, right? They're still... By and large, young adults, yes. Are they, are they among the very last Venezuelans who are allowed to eat? Did they, did they look fed? Uh, they looked well-fed. All right. No, they sounded they sounded terrific. Sharper, cleaner in some ways than um, the last time I heard the L.A. Philharmonic, mm. which is, of course, Dudamel's other project. Mm-hmm. And then to end, they had a, a selection of dances from various places. There was a... Uh, a Johann Strauss Polka. Um, there was an item by Ginastera. Hmm. There was um, a mambo. It was a hmm. fun gala programming, but and sometimes I, I lose my patience for that stuff. But I actually had a great time. Wonderful. I, I heard them in Salzburg. I think they gave a few concerts, but I, I heard them only in the pit for West Side Story. Hmm. And they were sensational, and so was he. So was Dudamel. Yeah. Since Bernstein would have loved. The, the the conducting and the playing he would have loved, and some of the singing. Well, since we were just on Carnegie Hall, do you mm. want to stick with that? And yeah. Talk a little bit about uh, about what we've got. Why don't I let you go first? What's your? Well, I have um, where Carnegie Hall is concerned, and by the way, we're talking about performances th- through the year, the calendar year, so through December. Right. right? Yeah. Uh, we'll save the uh, until we'll save New the Year's the Day. Yeah, right. yeah. I have I picked uh, four evenings. I'm looking forward to. There might be an afternoon in there. I don't know. Uh, but the first is a performance of Vinterreise, the Schubert Song Cycle, mm-hmm. by the tenor Ian Bostridge and the pianist Thomas Addis, who's of course one of the foremost composers of today and an excellent uh, pianist. Uh, very much so in Schubert. In fact, his the recording that includes him of the Trout Quintet is one of my f- favorites of that canonical and endlessly recorded work. Oh wow! Well, I this is actually the very first item on my list as well, um, and I am absolutely heartbroken that I'm going to have to miss it because I'll be out of town. Mm. Um, but Ian Bostridge just actually a, a year or two ago wrote a beautiful 600 page uh, essentially love letter to this piece it's a chapter by chapter 
um, consideration of each movement, and it goes all over the place. It's just it's not he, just music. He is one smart some oh, bitch that I can attest. Absolutely, yes. Um, and he draws in all of this stuff from from his knowledge of art, theater, literature, other examples of of uh, Schubert's music, any anyone else's music that you can think of. It's a brilliant work, and he so suffice to say he knows this piece really well. He's performed it a million times, and I would say he's probably considered one of its leading interpreters right now. Well, like everyone else, I I think of low voices when I think of this cycle. Right. But there are plenty of tenors and others who have done it, and mezzo-sopranos and sopranos. I heard Christine Schaefer, a light, high soprano, sing this piece, and it was really, really weird for the first three or four pages, and then you sort of <laughs> forgot and it was musical and convincing. Well, he uh, in his book, actually, he, he touches on that. One might say he even gets a little bit defensive um, and, and insists that the original settings require a tenor and, and gives a couple of examples of where he thinks it, uh, it actually works much better to have the tension of the high voice. Be that as it may, there's still a performance history. That's true. That's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. One can't uh, argue yeah. with Fischer Dieskau. And so, and, and also, you know, similarly, I think of uh, 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 Miller as a as a tenor cycle. Oh, do you? But but plenty of others do it. Yeah. I, I think I think of Fritz Funderlich. Hmm. And in our own day, people like Michael Schada. In our own day, I, I have to say, uh, I like Matthias Gönne for that cycle. Mm. He's pretty mm -hmm. brilliant in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I have, Eric, I have three piano recitals. Oh, yeah. I wasn't aiming for them. I just do. Well, it, it's aim in any direction in this city, and you're bound to hit a piano recital. Yeah. So I've got uh, Denis uh, Matsuev. I don't know how to pronounce his name Russianly. Hmm. Uh, and he is a virtuoso. Yeah. A, a, a pianist who makes a big sound. Yes. And... A very exciting fellow. And then there's a young, still young uh, Uzbek named uh, Abdurimov. Mm -hmm. I've written about him a couple of times. Um, I've written about his recordings. I don't believe I've ever heard him live. And he's giving sort of a throwback of a recital. I love he's playing these old-fashioned things. The uh, Bach Siciliano mm -hmm. in D minor after Vivaldi, arranged by Courtauld. That's something that uh, Arkady Volodos also plays. He's another throwback. And by the way, in my vocabulary, not in the general vocabulary, but in my vocabulary, throwback is a term of high praise. <laughs> and he's also doing, this is really verboten today, but this young man doesn't care. He's doing the Bazzoni arrangement of the Bach Toccata and Fugue, yeah. uh, also in D minor. And, you know, that's the kind of thing you might have heard in 1926. And I'm just delighted that he's doing it and other things, including the Appassionata Sonata. Right. Well, it's it's not just a throwback. It's actually a pretty varied recital program when I when I'm looking at it. I mean, you have those Absolutely. those two Bach transcriptions. Um, you've got two of Schubert's uh, Moments Musicaux, a Beethoven sonata, the Appassionata, Prokofiev, and that uh, wonderful showpiece, the Balakir of Islame, mm -hmm. um, and then God knows how many encores. Yeah, he really is a fellow who is following in the Russian Romantic tradition. Hmm. And when I say Russia, I'm including the stands and so on. So one one that I've got at uh, Carnegie Hall, uh, I'm going to say it both ways, probably for, through the conclusion of this uh, of this podcast. Um, October 26th in Zankel, uh, the Danish String Quartet will be. There will only be two items on the program: the Shostakovich String Quartet Number no. 15, and that is the last one. Yeah, and that great jewel of the chamber repertoire, the Schubert String Quintet in C major, um, with Torleif. You're better on these uh, Scandinavian names than I than I am, but I believe I, it's Torleif Tadian. I'd have to see it written. Show me. Thank you. Point. I don't know. I don't know. Doesn't look Scandinavian to me. What's that acute accent doing? Yeah, there? I'm not sure, but I think it's I think it's either Tedian or Tedian. I don't know this fellow. Yeah, I'm more of a Norwegian than a Dane. 
Oh, yeah? I wrote a history of the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> I attend the Oslo Freedom Forum. I, uh, Denmark's way too far west for me. Mm-hmm. A, yeah, I, a, I don't do mermaids. There's a great play, I understand, that took place there. Uh, well, yeah. 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 You mean uh, where something was rotten? Yes. Oh, okay. I believe so. But that's that's just a, a real... The only two items, but I would say it's a barnstormer of a of a chamber program these are these are not small well, i hope they can pieces. handle it technically and emotionally yeah um there's there was somewhere else and i'm going to struggle that schubert pieces if it's done right it's pretty much unbearable yeah absolutely the i i actually point to the the primary theme of that first movement as just one of the most beautiful melodies he had that anybody has ever devised he had a gift, and he died at 31. Just right. think if he'd even had like two, three more years, what would we have? But that's greedy. We have enough. You know, I, I sometimes like to think of it the other way. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't like to think of it. Right. It's a horrifying thought. Right. But what if Beethoven had died when he was 32? Well, you know, Ignaz Solzhenitsyn once, many years ago, told me something that was shocking to me. Uh, because he put Schubert in the very first tier. Mm. And he said, consider... If Beethoven had lived as long as Schubert, we'd have exactly one symphony from him, yep. number one. And uh, maybe a dozen piano sonatas, hmm. a smattering of string quartets, mm-hmm. and that would be it. Hmm. Which is yeah, a, it's a sobering thing. <laughs> it is a sobering thought, indeed. Um, and just think of the long-lived composers, or as modern people would say, long-lived. drives me nuts. <laughs> um, Verity... Saint-Saëns, uh, two to come to mind. Elliot Carter Haydn. lived to about a buck oh three. Haydn, yeah. Although he got his money's worth. What was it, 101 symphonies? 104, 104. yeah. But think of those late Verdi operas. Think of what we would... Think of think of him without them. You know, without Otello and Falstaff. I'm paging through my notes here because somewhere... Oh, here it is. October 23rd, that same day that... And it's just three days earlier, but that same day that the... Uh, that we're going to hear the Winterreise at Carnegie Hall. The Chamber Music Society is presenting uh, a couple of recitals celebrating the Emerson String Quartet at 40. And they will be playing in the second of their two installments, Shostakovich Quartet Number no. 10, Schubert String Quintet in C Major, uh, and Mark Anthony Turnage Shroud for String Quartet in New York premiere. How lucky are we? We get to hear that Schubert String Quintet twice in one week. Hmm. Well, is their extra cellist going to be their former cellist? Yes, uh, it David, is. Finkel? David Finkel. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've got a just a great, enormous program from Simon Rattle and the Berlin Philharmonic. Six Webern, six pieces, Opus six. Schoenberg, five pieces for orchestra. Berg, three pieces for orchestra. Hmm. And Brahms Symphony Number no. Two. Hmm. And that should be uh, that should be very very good. It's a great orchestra with a great horn section. Mm-hmm. And soon, uh, well, I guess they already do have the, officially their new uh, their new music director. Oh yeah, yeah. Huh. I'm not quite sure. And, and rattles to go to the LSO. It's always it's always um, they announce these people and then they show up five years later and yeah. once you've kind of forgotten about it. Yeah. Um, and they make up titles like music director designate or music right. director elector. Right. You sort of lose track of it along the way. And November 15th, the Philadelphia Orchestra, my hometown band, yeah, uh, with Yanni Knezé Sagan, who will, of course, soon be uh, taking on a bigger role here in New York at the Met. They'll be playing uh, Ravel, Le Tombeau de Couperin, Ravel, Daphne et Chloé, and... Prokofiev Violin Concerto Number no. 1 with a very talented uh, Benjamin Bileman. People sort of debate which one they like better. I'm very much in the camp, and I think it's an unorthodox position. I adore the first Prokofiev mm-hmm. Violin Concerto. The second is great in its way. It has this sort of ominous feel about it, but the first is just so sublime. Mm-hmm. No, the violinist lucked out. He gave them two really good concertos. And yeah. Oistrock was so greedy, he wanted the flute sonata in D major, <laughs> which uh, he had Prokofiev transcribe. 
for violin, so violinists claimed it. So Prokofiev did very, very well by violinists. He did. He himself was a pianist. We really only, we hear only two of the concertos, really, mm. or maybe two and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but no, I agree with you. It's like choosing between your children. Those two violin <laughs> concertos are winners, total winners. Last year, though, we did get actually all five uh, uh, Prokofiev piano concertos oh, yeah? in one concert. It was really endless. Uh, it, huh. it was uh, the Marinsky Orchestra at BAM. Oh, and it was a concerto thon. Concerto thon. Five different pianists. Two of them. Uh, had been a finalist in the Tchaikovsky competition from the previous summer. And you, hearing them five, all five in a row, you can sort of understand why we only hear two of them. Because yeah. Some of them just don't stand up. No. Um, number two has is very, very flashy and has some very good pages, I would say. But right. in my view, it's subpar Prokofiev. Number four is a left-hand concerto. Mm-hmm. Which is sort of a thankless... And, and except for yeah yeah it is a thankless piece yeah. number one i actually love it's off i i think you yourself so remarked that that it's it has one of the great openings which, of any concerto and then after which that he's, but he's oh. savvy enough to come back to it he right, just exactly. makes it he just he's a, he knows he's got something winning there mm-hmm. and so yeah yeah it's young people he was young when he wrote it very young Young people love that. Young pianists love to play it. And young people love to hear it. Yeah. It's got so much testosterone in it. I mean, it's almost adolescent. He's just bursting at the seams. It's, uh, I love it. To me, it and feels very like hard. flight. It's mm-hmm. those, this huge, spacious opening. It's bright. Airy, oh, that's interesting. A lot of people think of water. Da da yum bum da da da. Yeah. No, he really was onto something there. Well, speaking of um, Russians and the piano, I have Daniel Trifonov still at Carnegie Hall. Oh, yeah. Schumann, Shostakovich, and Stravinsky. So those are my Carnegie um, items. Hmm. Do you have more from that institution? You know, I think those are, those are really the highlights for me. Hmm. Um, there is, a, there is a, a recital, a very interesting kind of wide-ranging recital from Ben Bliss, at the tenor, uh, accompanied by Lachlan Glenn. Uh, we have some Strauss, we have Morgan and Stanchen. Never heard of Ben Bliss. I think I've heard of him Hope he's before. happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One assumes. Huh. Um, there are uh, a few of those... Uh, we have a composer named Bliss, Arthur Bliss, once well-known. The, fa- the Brits fade. Right. I think it was Sir Arthur Bliss. Yes. Well, here's one one uh, Brit who doesn't fade. Um, there are on this program a few items by Benjamin Britten, including he had that set of, of English folk songs. And, yeah. And one of them on this is The Last Rose of Summer, huh? which is, well, right now, I guess it's kind of seasonally appropriate. In yeah. New York, we're still, yeah. it's early October and we're still in the 60s. Um, but there's uh, a wonderful and extraordinary, uh, just insane transcription for and set of variations for violin by uh, the the great Heinrich Wilhelm Ernst, hmm. um, which I think, given the uh, given the timing of this podcast, I think we're going to use as the intro and extra. If you All will. right. So the, good. The listeners will have heard uh, at least a little bit of it by this point. Extra. I'm going to have to add that to my vocabulary. Well, I think it's it's. If we're going to, to use introduction, we have to we have to Yeah. Yeah. Grammatically speaking, it should be extra. I've also heard outro. Outro is, is I, uh, the I'm going with extra from now on. I'm I'm going for I'm going with extra. There we go. Uh, anything else at Carnegie Hall? I think that uh, wraps n- up. For not me. on my list, yeah. All right. Well, we've we've sort of started on the Met too. We had our sure. our um, Tristan, our Don Giovanni. Um, I do want to say before getting into specifics that we'll, I think, get into this more when we do the spring semester. But to me, this is actually one of the more exciting repertory seasons. I mean, leaving mm-hmm. out the, the new productions, this mm-hmm. it's sort of an imaginative, varied lineup of, um, of great repertory items with casts that I really am looking forward to hearing. Right now, they're doing a revival of the... Um, 
ageless and and one suspects it will continue to be ageless Zeffirelli production of La Boheme um, and the current cast conducted by Carlo Rizzi includes Eileen Perez as Mimi Susanna Phillips as Musetta um, Dimitro Popov as Rodolfo I'm really interested to hear Perez I remember hearing her debut as Micaela and Carmen a few mm-hmm. years ago and she was brilliant mm-hmm. in that in that basically one aria that she has but yeah. she really stole the show with it but later in on November 16th there will be a new cast with uh, Christine Opolais and Piotr Bachawa it's hard to uh, line up much more star power than that yeah that's true I am um, let me echo Marilyn Horn hmm. who told me something in an, in an interview She's tired of hearing undersized voices in roles like Mimi. Yeah. Her idea of a Mimi is Tebaldi. And Christine Opolais, who's a beautiful woman, as almost all Balts are, <laughs> she has no business singing that role. You don't think? No, she had no business singing Manon Lescaut. And I just you can't hear her. There's just, there's, you've got to have some stim- you, you've These roles require voice. And things, I think, in the opera world, in casting, have been overly lyricized. Hmm. I, I will say, in her defense, we are talking about... It's not her fault. Her, her voice is its size. Right. You know, I'm not, I'm not faulting her. I'm faulting here. the casting. Right. And I think, I think we, we also have to fault the opera house to some extent. The fact that it is such a well, cavernous, ca- ca- Well, cast, casters should take account of that. Right. I, I, that's yeah. true. Yeah. That's true. I, the, uh, last season, we had uh, um, Georgiou singing a Tosca at the Met. And, mm-hmm. you, and you heard exactly this phenomenon that I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, this is some great singing, mm-hmm. but I can barely hear it. Mm-hmm. And I sort of imagine if I were at, say, the Royal Opera and House. She's a little older now, though. She is. So take that into account. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. But but it, I could sort of imagine if I were a, a, a slightly smaller venue like the Royal yeah. Opera House. Yeah. Or, or La Fenice, a much smaller venue. She'd be able to scald. Absolutely. Yeah. To her credit, she didn't do what a lot of sort of smaller voiced singers do and try to really shout her way through it just to be heard. Yeah, she, she worked let, with what she had, I'm she sure. She let her voice be its size. She's so smart. Yeah. So smart. As I often say, I have no idea what she'd score on her SAT. <laughs> no idea. But she is, and not given credit for it either, she is really really smart musically and theatrically smart and the target of enormous envy right speaking of Manon Lescaut um, yeah. they've got a revival of that I thought that production was pretty sophomoric hmm. um, uh, Opelice will be reprising uh, her role from that as, as Manon Lescaut Anna Trebko will also be taking it on uh, at some point during the run I'm not sure whether it's on the beginning uh, or the, the latter half of the run we have Marcello Alvarez as Descrieux, Christopher Maltman as Lescaux, uh, Brindley Sherratt as Geronte, or I guess the Italian pronunciation, sorry, Geronte. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a pretty good cast, mm-hmm. up and down, leaving the issue of the station yeah. behind. Well, I have Natrebko on my list from the Met. Uh, I heard her sing this role in Salzburg this summer, and I predict it will be uh, very Slavic, <laughs> um, wrong, hammy, and fantastic. Yeah, this is a bad question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you do you prefer one or the other of the Massonet or the Puccini treatments of this story? I love them both. I, I, I've often said about Massonet in general and his operas, his highlights are magnificent, mm. and they dot a sea of mediocrity. You think? In Manon. Um, I mean, the, there are two tenorarias that are terrific, just marvelous. And the soprano has uh, Adieu, ma petite table, mm-hmm. and the gavotte. And there's, you know, there's a pretty good duet. Oh, that's the duet's beautiful. But, but you have to put up with a lot that's pedestrian. Right. Uh, I love Manon. I wouldn't trade it. I love Manon Lascaux. <laughs> Puccini is so underrated. <laughs> it's interesting. Oh, He's, there's a statement. He is, he is loved by the he's loved by the unwashed, and he's loved by musicians who really know, hmm. and he's sneered at by the middle brows. <laughs> he's loved by the bottom and the top, 
and misunderstood and stupidly knocked by the middle. And I was thinking about that opera because I, 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 I'd heard it in, twice in rapid succession, Manon Lascaux. And um, it's, even just orchestrally, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's ingenious. Yeah. So I have Netrebko there. Let me say something about Aida. The Mets Aida will have a couple of Aide, <laughs> uh, Krasimir Stoyanova, the Bulgarian. She's one of the greatest singers of our time. I would never, ever have thought of her for Aida. First of all, I think of her as Germanic, um, a Straussian, also a Mozartian. But um, I wouldn't have thought of her as Aida, but I'm happy to see or hear her in anything. And she was one of the most moving performers, by the way, in Salzburg this summer. And then uh, they'll have an American favorite of mine in that role, Latanya Moore. Oh, I yeah. loved her when she was a girl, and I think I'd love her now when she's well into her career. And also a famous Aida will be Amneris, uh, Violetta Umana, hmm. who began as a mezzo and then became a soprano. And I guess she's a mezzo again. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I admired her highly, highly when she was a mezzo. Highly. And I'm just interested to hear her Amneris. Well, I, I look at this one and um, <laughs> in some it, some ways the... I think of the April Aida as the quintessential phonodin late season revival. Um, that is, it's of course, uh, this production is one of the classic Met productions. I think since the retiring of the Tosca and the uh, Rosenkavalier, it might be sort of the most opulent thing they have remaining in the repertoire. You have these well, great. They've got the turn dot. That's true. That's yeah. true. We can't forget that. Yeah, you can't out opulent that. No, but we. But, you still have so many great. With the grandeur of Aida's. Ele yeah. Elevator tricks. Yeah. You have the um, the horses who are always acting up. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they, the casting can be so uneven. And I, I saw one of the tenors they have lined up for it is Marco Berti. I think he'll be doing the season premiere of it. And I've heard him in a few uh, in a few roles in the last few seasons. And it's it, it's one of these unfortunate things where they seem to just kind of not know who to go to and kind of plug somebody in and it just doesn't it just doesn't work you put somebody out there who isn't really equipped to succeed in the role and but when it comes to italian tenors though pickens are pretty slim that's true today very very slim so it's any port in a storm i i'd sometimes and that tenor has to begin with celestaida i i do i do wonder at times why if, if you're if you're gonna just throw somebody in there who you don't you know may or may not have a lot of confidence in why don't why not give it to one of the younger people give it to give it to somebody one of these homegrown products that they're trying to uh mm -hmm. trying mm -hmm. to push up and, mm -hmm. you know let let them cut their teeth on this mm -hmm. yeah no I, I understand what you mean entirely i have um levine conducting nabucco yep and uh, domingo in the title role of that opera I, I don't know what Levine will be. Or if. Uh, or if. But um, he's conducting the entire opera, of course, but in particular the famous chorus, that, that hymn, Va Pensiero. It, he, he's been known to encore it during mm. the opera. Just to you know, play it again, Sam, to conduct it all over again. And this is a man who I understand in his career has not been entirely pro-encore, historically. Is that so? Yeah, it must be so. Well, yeah, he's he's been running the ship for a while, and I, yeah, and they haven't had until the last couple of years they hadn't had uh, they hadn't had encore arias at least. Oh, really? For quite a while. Mm-hmm. That's right. Juan Diego Flores did one. Juan Diego Flores uh, has done a couple now. Uh -huh. As has um, Casanova. Well, um, well, this new uh, this new tenor Camarena. Um, I think I meant to say Camarena. There is a Francisco Casanova. <laughs> Very romantic name. Well, and this but one's yeah, yeah. Javier Camarena. From Don Pasquale, you mean? Don Pasquale, and he also did in... Cenerentola? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. All right. And I've got um, a Romeo and Juliet of Gounod. Yes. With Damrau and Grigolo. New Year's Eve. Yes. Yes. I, I think that Damrau will do a beautiful Je veux vivre. Mm. That's from Romeo and Juliet, isn't it? Yes, I believe so. And um, and Grigolo, 
if even if he's not on, the sheer beauty of the voice. And the sheer he's intensity. A, it's another one they love to hate, but uh, he has so much talent. Yeah. Sometimes, beginning, beginning with that throat. Right. Sometimes you wish he would just calm down for a second. Yeah, well, I figure it's opera. <laughs> it's opera. You have standards for opera? Eric. Yeah, believe it or not. Yeah, I think that should be very good. Gounod is another of these uh, these French operatic composers yeah. that they love to sneer at. Yes, yes, and he'll outlive them. Already has. <laughs> <laughs> Already has. He, if, if for the funeral march of a marionette alone, he would live. Right. I do have just a couple of things more at the uh, at the Met. We have a Yunufa. Um, I think that's a revival. Yeah, it must be. Um, with Oksana Daika, Karita Matila. Uh, we have the Metropolitan Opera premiere, believe it or not, of Guillaume Tell. Oh, that's right. They haven't done it? They've never done it. Huh. How interesting. I'm trying to... Jeez. It's bizarre. Yeah. You have this, this amazing Rossini opera yeah. with... The overture, of course, being one of the most beloved excerpts yeah. in the entire canon, and they've never done the opera. Mm-hmm. There was a, a concert performance of, of it at Carnegie Hall a couple of seasons ago with the uh, Teatro Regio di Torino. Well, unfortunately, I don't. I should Google this. I should hop online. But there's a famous Rossini statement, and I'll mess it up. But it's something like, "If I'm remembered for anything, I hope to be survived by." And he names one act of Otello, one act of William Tell. Then he says, "And all of the barber." Ah. Well, he's certainly been survived by all of the barbers. Mm-hmm. I would throw in Act One of L'Italiana too, hmm. which is playing at the which Met they're now. playing right now. Yeah, right? Um, yeah, and Fabio Luisi will be conducting. I think good. he has a, a nice hand for this kind of He'll thing. He'll be good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. Anything else? It's an out? it's an unknown opera with a well known overture. Yes. Um, will it be done in French or Italian? We'll, well have to check that. They have it, uh, they they have it listed as Guillaume Tell, yeah, so I assume Guglielmo. it's in French. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So I think that must do it, actually, for uh, for the Met. I think we've it does at it least for me. mentioned everything. It does it for me, have too. Have we? Uh, I don't think we have, but we've mentioned all we want to mention. Yeah, that's true. Um, anything at the Philharmonic stand out? I got two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ying Fang, the young soprano. From China, mm-hmm. she'll be singing Mozart's Exultate Jubilate. I bet it'll be tasteful and beautiful, and Mozartian, and warming, and also somewhat exciting. Maybe not. <laughs> and I've also got a new trombone concerto from my hometown boy, because I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan, by William Bolcom, who's been at the University of Michigan for decades, for his entire career, I believe. Great. Well, I've I've got something on October 27th. Uh, Pablo Heros Casado will be leaving the orchestra. The Bartok Dance Suite, Dvorak Symphony Number no. Seven, and I will preface this by saying that I don't actually love the concerto. Maybe just because I heard it a million times as a student, but Brooke Violin Concerto Number no. One. Uh-huh. What I'm really excited about, though, is it'll be performed by Frank Frank Huang, the new New York huh. Philharmonic concertmaster, and it, I think it's it's always a really nice thing when you get to hear the concertmaster the leader of, of the violins, the orchestra in a way, getting up there and, and playing a concerto. We, we get to hear, hear them in, in once in a while in, a, uh, in something like uh, Strauss' Heldenleben. But to really hear them play a, a Tchaikovsky concerto, a, a Brook concerto, a Mendelssohn concerto once in a while is a real treat. These are great violinists. Hmm. The, the, many years ago, decades ago, I think the Philadelphia Orchestra had a series called First Chair. Hmm. And it was their principals playing different works for uh, their instrument and orchestra. And can I say something about that Brooke Concerto? Please. Um, I quote Lauren Mazel to you. If you're jaded by something through overexposure, <laughs> it's not its fault. <laughs> that may be. Yeah. That may be. I'll give it another listen. Although maybe that's the opposite of what I need to do. Maybe I need to let it rest for a while. Ah, I don't know. It's a great piece. I, th- I, if you're like me, I think people often they like or love a piece when young, and then they're sort of off it for a while, and the rediscovery and re-embrace of it is beautiful. Hmm. Well, here there are, I have two more from the fill that I really want to highlight. Uh, one, a 
it's an interesting assemblage of items. Um, on November 3rd, Zubin Mehta leads the orchestra. We have Anushka Shankar, sitarist, performing Ragamala Concerto Number no. 2 by her famous father, Ravi Shankar. And on the latter half of the program is Schubert Symphony in C Major, hmm. number nine. Yeah, um, he loves that piece. Uh, well, I love that piece Zubin. too. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's loves just conducting. sort of a funny pairing of yeah. pieces in a way. Yeah, um, it is. And then November 17th, Jaap van Sweden, the maestro-elect yeah. of the New York Philharmonic, conducts Wagner, Prelude to Act One of Lohengrin, Tchaikovsky Symphony Number no. 4, and a new piece, a new viola concerto mm. by Julia Adolf called Unearth Release, and that will star Cynthia Phelps, the mm. uh, principal violist of the New York Philharmonic. And I can't live on Walton alone, I guess. No, nor uh, Der Schwanendreher. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to the Yap era very, very much. Hmm. Yeah, I, I do too, for the most part. I have a... I wonder what will become of the... Um, what I think was Alan Gilbert's greatest uh, achievement, which was really making them certainly New York's and maybe this country's chief exponent uh, or chief proponent of new music hmm. for symphony. Hmm. Uh, and I, th I think that was a great project. And it really, it gave them... Anything you want to hear again? Oh, I'm being a little cheeky. Mean. But doesn't um, merit count? In addition oh, to absolutely. just newness, absolutely it does. Yeah. But but I think for the Philharmonic, in particular, where you know, if we're being honest, I don't know that they're always, especially lately, they're not always up to the level of say whoever happens to be coming in Carnegie Hall. They're, they head to head. I don't know that one would take them over the Vienna Philharmonic for Beethoven. But when you have them doing something like this, and and really playing a lot of new music it gives them a place at the table in what is a really crowded table in new york yeah and i think that's a valuable thing i do too i you do too with a smirk no no i no i'm agreeing <laughs> with you i'm agreeing with you i He's smirking i can tell but you. no yeah i i think yap will conduct new music mm -hmm. i think he might have if he has a choice in this i'm not sure how programming works i, I think he'll do his best to maintain standards. I'm worried that the orchestra will rebel and not sit still for him. Well, they rebel against everybody. Yeah, but I'm talking about for a different reason. Mm. Um, you know, Yop can be, a, by all accounts, a podium tyrant. Ah. And the, these unionists aren't going to stand for that, for heaven's sakes. Uh, and so it'll just be interesting who has to do the more adjusting. I, 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 I don't know. He is... Um, Jaap van Sweden is a man of, of discipline and great musicality and very, very high hmm. musical and orchestral standards. Yes. Very high. But um, orchestras have been in control for a very long time, and conductors have been the servants. And Jaap van Sweden doesn't strike me as anyone's servant. I can see a clash between him and a union committee, and whenever a union goes up against anybody, certainly in New York, the anybody loses. Yeah, well, we, we just had this strike in Philadelphia, of course, that uh, oh, yeah. thankfully passed relatively quickly. I just have two more things that I want to mention. Um, one is a part of the White Light Festival. Right. On October 30th at uh, formerly Avery Fisher, now David Geffen Hall, we have the London Symphony Orchestra under the baton of John Andrea Nozeda performing... Verdi's Requiem. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of those Verdi pieces that we can't imagine living without, that is... Oh, yeah. That was late, wasn't it? Yeah. And right up at the top for me, or, or among the among the first tier. Mm -hmm. um, and another... Now, I don't think you and I have discussed yet the, the resurgence, um, if, if that's what it is, of the New York City Opera. Yeah. Um, and the revival the revival and i have to say the i've, I've seen basically everything that they've done so far i've seen or heard um and you know, in some places um the orchestra sort of doesn't doesn't sound like it's really comfortable playing together still in other cases i heard a a pagliacci just a few weeks ago that knocked my socks off hmm. 
I, I went in. I did not expect to hear a tenor like I heard that night. I did not expect to hear a soprano like I heard that night. Hmm. That The orchestra sounded great. And that piece just yeah. is, is so... It's well done. So much energy and power packed into, mm. what is it, 90 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. I went to the first part of that double bill because I'd never seen Rachmaninoff's Aleko. Oh, right. Yeah. That was on the top half. And um, so this sort of rump city opera, this revived rump city opera, <laughs> is doing for me what city opera did for me and others for years, and that is introduced me to repertoire. Mm. And however it's been performed, well or badly or in between, that is a great service. Yeah. I've known about Aleko all my life, and you know, there was a famous Chalyapin recording of, of the main aria, I guess, that we all knew. But I'd never seen this opera and may never again. Yeah. Uh, a student piece, a graduation piece by Rachmaninoff. And it's a real service. Well, they have, uh, starting November 17th, at the Duke Theater on West 42nd, um, a, a new opera called Fallujah. Yes, I've heard about that. Yeah. I don't know very much about it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm certainly interested to see it. Me too. Me too. Anything more from you, Jeff? Yeah, I, I, on the issue of the Great Performers series. Oh, right. I like the idea of the White Light Festival, just in general, because it has a lot of religious music on it. I think if they actually use the word religion, you know, New York might have a heart attack, but um, <laughs> but that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Uh, and you mentioned the LSO Verdi Requiem concert. Uh, they're also having a concert... Uh, in which the soloist is Yuja Wang, the pianist, who's playing the Ravel Concerto. She plays it consummately, or as Bill Buckley would say, consummately well. Um, she's a, I heard her play it this summer, and other times, I think, I definitely reviewed a recording. She's a great player of the Ravel. It, it, it was almost written for her. It plays to her strengths, including clarity, finesse, so on. So I wouldn't miss that. I'm interested, by the way, that you you speak of her strengths as being clarity and finesse, and I agree with you. And, but she's for so long had the reputation of just sort of being a pedal to the metal, rock star kind of pianist. In well, my experience, she's, she's no, hardly that she's at a, all. She's she's a very nimble, yeah. pian- crystalline pianist, mm-hmm. right? Um, one trouble she has is that thus far she she really can't make a a big, fat, or lush, or rich sound. Yeah. She makes a thin, sometimes brittle sound. No problem in the Ravel Concerto. No problem at all. Or, 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 in, or in French Impressionism, period. Uh, it's a problem in Rachmaninoff and Brahms. That I, I haven't heard from her a fat, rounded, rich, soulful sound. But that's okay. Can't do everything. I mean, she can do a million things that other people can't. Right. And... Um, I don't think you're the biggest Joshua Bell fan who ever lived. <laughs> no, I wouldn't be accused of that. But I admire him, and I and I look forward to a recital of his with Alessio Bax. One thing I like about a Bell recital is, well, first of all, his playing, but second, he almost always plays a mixed program, and he doesn't give a damn about programmatic themes. He gives a program of pieces from various eras by various composers, obviously, that you know, he thinks go well together, but he doesn't have a programmatic theme and he doesn't care. Right. It's very old-fashioned. I love that kind of recital. So that's also great performers. And I also have uh, Christian Gerhaher, the the baritone, one of my favorite song singers. He's doing an all-maler all program with his regular uh, accompanist. I still use that word, even though it's verboten. Gerald or Gerald Huber. Huber. Uh, this is something I wouldn't want to miss. Mm-hmm. And let me throw uh, two recitals at you from the 92nd Street Y. Mark andre Hamlin, uh, the Canadian pianist, is known as a great virtuoso, as well he should be. He plays things, talk about a throwback guy. He plays things from the, from the you know, heyday of, uh, of romantic virtuosity or, or virtuosic romanticism. He plays things that, that many don't don't play today but he's giving an all mozart uh recital and he loves mozart i'm interested uh, to hear him in it and then there's a violinist isabel faust with the pianist alexander melnikoff 
Uh, I like her. I don't think I know Melnikov. And they're doing something I'm unfamiliar with. They're doing a Buzoni violin sonata. Yeah, I don't know that one either. Yeah, so I'll appreciate being acquainted with it. Yeah, I heard her a couple of years ago as part of the Mostly, Mostly Mozart Festival. She played Concerto Number no. 5, Mozart Concerto Number no. 5. Um, I didn't buy it. And then I went to, you know, those, uh, what do they call them? The, um, a little night music, the little recitals they have up in the Kaplan penthouse. And she played the Bach D minor partita, all of it. Yeah. And it was gorgeous. It was stunning. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's musical life. It is. Isn't it? Yeah. That penthouse is pretty cool, isn't it? Oh, it's one of the, I think it's the, the chicest or one of the chicest performing venues in New York. You ever been to the Apple Room I in the Time Warner Center? I, I, I think it's a Pell, but I'm not sure. Oh, is it? Ah, it's bummer. It's A-P-P-E-L, so nobody knows. Right. All right. I, yeah. Huh. I have been there, and that, I think you described it in one of your recent columns, actually. It's, yeah. it's you've got this view of, speaking of columns, the uh, the Columbus statue, looking, you're looking straight down, uh, what is that, Central Park South? Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's just an amazing place to hear a concert. Just a huge piece of glass. Really, it's very yeah. distracting. Actually, it can be good when you want some relief from whatever you're hearing. Right. Well, it's sort of the opposite of uh, of a place like Carnegie Hall, where you can always hear the taxis, but you can't see them. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, up in the Time Warner Center, up on the uh, up on the eighth floor or whatever it is. You know, even the main auditorium of Carnegie Hall, you can hear the subway. Yeah. Uh, not like you can in Zankel Hall, where the subway is almost ever present. Hmm. And a really kind of an error, I think, an error of construction um, on the part of Carnegie Hall. Uh, people try to pass it off as urban, hip, edgy. <laughs> wow, so cool, man. Cool dude, the subway. Yeah, we're in New York. But uh, even um, even in the main, what they call stern, I gag on that phrase, stern auditorium. But even what I call Carnegie Hall, you can hear that sucker. Probably not, probably not up in a while. What's, Stern, it's Stern Auditorium that you don't like and not Perelman Stage. Oh, even worse. <laughs> Mind you, the Richard Tuck, the Ezio Pinza Drinking Fountain. Oh, the I love the Ezio Pinza <laughs> Drinking Fountain. Like a, uh, a, a, a great singer with a passion for hydration. Really? <laughs> I, I assume, you know. I remember, um, who was oh, who was that famous butterfly? Uh, Alicia Albanese. I think she was on a Met Intermission program once, radio program many years ago and it was hosted by oh, the great beautiful blonde carmen beautiful american singer that mezzo soprano uh Risa stevens mm. and i think licha was on there and someone mentioned Ezio pins <laughs> licha albanese said yeah pinza was a wolf <laughs> and, 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 and steven said you know, i don't want to talk about Ezio, right now. i want to talk about texaco she said i don't want to talk about Ezio." but I've, i was always remembered that you know pinza was a wolf Sure he was. Well, do you have anything else? I think uh, that just about covers it for me. I think, you, I think you should wrap it up with something else, with some great, some something, some pensée, something deep. I mean, you're the classic mm. student. You, you studied all these great works. You're the intellectual. You're the philosopher around here. Oh, give, give us a benediction. Let me think. Don't let all, don't not, let all that good uh, Quaker school and Yale training go to waste. <laughs> I can I do vamped, vamped till ready. Oh, actually, you know, one, one thing we didn't uh, get at the mess, Met, was we have a Salome coming back. December 5th to the 28th. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, just, it's just a, it's one of those great pieces that is worth hearing every time, I think. Isn't that true? He, you know, Strauss wrote a lot of long pieces like Rosenkavalier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was so good at shorter ones. <sighs> Electra. And Salome, right? Yeah. They're so well constructed. You wouldn't wish them shorter or longer. They're well nigh perfect. And um, the man's imagination was something else. He obviously had a dark side. Right. And a streak of perversion, I would say. And I, I don't mean that negatively, even. He was a weird dude. Now you hear it in Electra. Exactly. You know, beneath this or behind this. So respectable bourgeois facade. He was a weird guy, mm. or at least an appreciator of it. Of the weird. Yeah, and um, Salome and Electra are both you know, brilliant and and freaky works. 
Um, I have a story about Solomon. But I, I, I'm going to save that from for some time. I'll tell you that I'm pretty sure I coined this. Maybe it's not worth claiming credit for, but for many, many years, I've referred to Salome's final scene as the mad Liebestot. And huh. I, I think it is, and Strauss knew Wagner very well. <clears throat> I mean, the works. Right. Um, and this, I've always thought of that final scene, which is one of the greatest things in opera, one of the greatest things in lyric theater. I've always thought of it as the Liebestot with, with, a, twi- with twist, a twisted Liebestot a demented Liebestot. It is one of the most exciting, overwhelming things ever composed. And I suppose, gun to my head, my two favorites in it are Inga Bork and Leontine Price. Oh, it's, it's funny you uh, say it's the, the Liebestot with a, a twist. Because if we can, I think we should, before wrapping up, sneer at the sneerers one more time. Um, I've heard so many people put down, and it's weird, I don't know about so many, but I've heard people put down Strauss and say that, that he was sort of derivative. Richard Strauss? Yeah. Yeah. Which I've never... I guess I can sort of wrap my head around the idea of it, but I they t- totally reject it. They hate him for not being Pierre Boulez, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> you know, great to have one or two or 60. Not everybody. Right. Not everybody. No, Stra- what, what Strauss does... And, uh, Look, his songs alone. Mm. He told someone in old age, he might have told Hans Hotter. In old age, Strauss said, you know, I like my songs the best. He was a great songwriter. The introduction Like to... Schubert and Schumann. Yeah. A great songwriter. That... And a great man of the theater. And the tone poems are very good. I think Death and Transfiguration is very, very good. Yeah. That introduction to Morgan just mm. takes my breath away every single time. It is... <laughs> if you're looking for a definition of sublime, it is. it just passes description. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he had a great gift. Uh, I, I believe that he is a great composer and another person benefited by a long life. People are... I think this goes to the criticism of Eric. People are often shut. Hey, I think of Bill Buckley. No, I told him about Rachmaninoff once. Bill was shocked at how long Rachmaninoff had lived. People are often shocked or surprised at, at how long Strauss lived. I think it, he dies when, 1949? I think that's right. He, he outlived the regime by and a few years at least. People think of him as sort of 19th century and early 20th century. Right. Not wrongly, but he really had, like Verdi and some others, the gift of years. Hmm. And that's a gift for us too. And who, um, oh, cripe, this is one thing about podcasting rather than writing. Who's that, um, I have to look it up and put it in a post. But there is a, a composer who is famously long-lived. I think he lived to about a buck oh seven. And David Dubal told me once that if you allow for some maybe early childhood pieces, this fellow is arguably the only composer ever to have written in three centuries. Leo Ornstein came to me. Uh came to me leo ornstein now i'll have to look this up but i mean i I think he was on like three at the turn of the first century but um i thought what a statement possibly the only human being ever to have written music in three different centuries when was elliot carter born i interviewed him i think he was he was born in 08 okay as i remember i think he was born in an administration of Teddy Roosevelt, I have to look this up. He had, I interviewed him on the occasion of his 100th birthday. He had very clear memories, not childhood memories, not little fuzzy memories, but very clear memories of World War I. Wow. Yeah, he saw British warships in the Hudson. What they were doing there, I'm not sure, but they were there. And he went with his father, who was a businessman, to Europe shortly after the war and saw scenes of devastation that never left him. And he also, another tidbit I got from Carter, he played with radio with the first radio, the radio cubes, I think they were called, uh, uh, on the roof of, of, of their apartment building on Riverside Drive. The very first radios he played with as a kind of toy to see if we could get on, on, on that roof. Well, that's a, that's a happier note to wrap up on than... Uh, and he was taken to Carnegie Hall by Charles Ives. <laughs>
Who'd have thought? Mm. Well, I think uh, we've been at this an hour or more, uh, so I think we'd uh, we'd better wrap it. Jay, it's always a pleasure. You can read Jay in the current issue of New Criterion from his travels in Salzburg, um, the, the Salzburg Chronicle, and you can read both of us coming up in, in November. Jay will have his New York Chronicle. I'll have thoughts on a couple of items from London. Uh, and we'll be back with you sometime earlier in, early in the new year to discuss the second semester of the musical season. Until then, I'm Eric Simpson here with Jay Nordlinger. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.